Hey, I'm Brett. And I'm Aditi, and this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And how Stephanie is doing today, because, you know, we, that's always really important for our podcast. How are you, Steph? I'm doing well. I'm excited uh, about what we're talking about today. It is going to be a fun show, guys. It's pretty amazing. Also, we've made it through almost an entire season without focusing on a plant-based meat company because a lot of mainstream consumers only associate food tech with plant-based meats. And Brett and Steph, there's so much to sink our teeth into. Pun intended? Yes, absolutely intended, as cheesy as it was. But I mean, really, there are so many aspects of plant-based meat that we've kind of touched upon and talked about in terms of trends. But even I didn't realize what a rich space this was until I heard you guys talking about the picks and shovels of the space or mouthfeel or even supply chain to ingredient sourcing. There is just so much. I mean, it's interesting. You'll hear from some founders, like just even the supply chain for some of the ingredients has to be changed and modified. We've talked to Purist already this season, and they're managing part of that supply chain and and creating protein-rich crop that can be used for it. So people, when they think they eat an Impossible Burger or, or something like that, they don't think about all the things that have to change in the food supply chain to get it all the way to consumption. It's not just like magically, we were already growing these things, and then it's in my mouth. Supply chains had to change, how they were processed, how they were manufactured, how they were put together. It really has been a significant challenge to get to where we are today. And there's still challenges, especially around health and quality, taste, you know, mouthfeel is one of the things. And and for a long time in some of the cell-based space, it's price competitiveness. And for cultured meat, a lot of regulatory issues too. And while Steph, we've come so far from the old veggie burger that we grew up with, we are just at the beginning of innovation when it comes to plant-based meats. I mean, companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods are household names, but there's now a next generation of plant-based meat companies which are using more simple and single ingredients, less processing to make their products. Absolutely. And it's so funny because from an investment perspective, you start to think, oh, well, how many of these can there be? Impossible and beyond are, are already huge. And then you hear these new innovations. You see these new ingredients. You see these new takes. And you see some of the companies that are doing those picks and shovels that Brett was talking about. And it continues to be really exciting. So the question of today's show, guys, is when will fake meat taste like real meat? Well, our guest today, Dan Riegler, says his company, Karana, already produces authentic tasting meat from jackfruit which is found in Asia. Guys, I had their meatballs and their dumplings. I'll let you know later on in this episode what I thought. Did you try the meatball hoagie though? Because the meatball hoagie is the way I would go. That's my preferred way of eating meatballs is meatball hoagie. Meatball hoagies are great. Love meatball hoagies. There's no great meatball hoagie in the Twin Cities. There used to be one and they took it off the menu. Very disappointed. It's one of the things that happened during COVID. One of the main things that I was very Listeners, disappointed Listeners, if about. you have a meatball hoagie that you like in Minnesota, please contact us. Brett will travel for food, for meatball hoagies, that is. Heck yeah. (laughs) Well, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. We are talking seafood disruption for all three stories today, starting with lobster prices. They are soaring. Axios is reporting that Maine lobster went for $6.71 a pound in 2021, up nearly 40% from two years earlier. Now, supply chain issues and demand are part of the reason for the spike. And Brett, I know some cultured meat companies like Upside Foods are really getting into the lobster game. 
Are those companies tackling the biggest challenge in the industry, which is just recreating the meat, or is it the supply chain that needs innovation more? I mean, we had culture decadence on um, on the podcast in the startup corner, who was actually acquired by Upside Foods recently, and and they were doing lobster meat, cell based lobster meat, and the lobster space is a really interesting space, right? You have short seasons, you have limited markets where you can actually go and catch the lobster in. And I don't think people realize this, but a lot of the lobster caught is actually, people don't eat it in like the big lobster on the plate in front of them that you're dipping in butter. It's actually manufactured and processed. And so that's where a lot of the lobster goes to is for fillings, for meats, for things like that. And I think to your question, Aditi, from a supply chain perspective, you know, thinking more broadly than just lobster, the seafood world in general, a lot of the problems are perhaps that they're not solving for, but the reason that these companies are trying to have alternative seafood is because of the supply chain difficulties, because of the labor problems, the damage to the environment, the decreasing species, all sorts of stuff. That's what I've heard, that seafood in particular, that the supply chain's pretty broken. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I actually believe that consumption of seafood as a protein has increased more quickly than any other protein. And it's because of the health benefits it perceived as a very healthy protein. And so that's everything from fish to to shellfish. Random side note, I also um, am a lobster diver. Little known fact. Who knew that? I did not know that, Brett. Brett would tell you that he is one of the world's premier lobster divers. Oh, yeah. I've never been anybody that's better than me. Wow. You float on the water and you look around, you scout them, and then you have to free dive down with a net and a tickle stick. And the lobsters hide under rocks or in holes and you got to coax them out. And they're super fast. They don't look fast, but they're super fast so they can get away from you. And you're holding your breath the whole time you're doing this underwater. And in our next episode, Brett will explain what a tickle stick is. Stay tuned for that. (laughs) One of the most important tools when you're catching lobster. Well, we're going to stay on the seafood theme here for our second story, which is Finless Foods. It's raised $34 million in Series B funding. The startup will use the money to launch plant-based tuna in the U.S. this year and also gain regulatory approval for its cell-cultured bluefin tuna for consumption in the U.S. Guys, this is the first cell-cultured seafood company. Do you think it's a smart move to start with tuna given its popularity and perhaps the cost to produce it? Yeah, I think that they're they're doing it strategically based. I don't, and I'm not associated with Finless in any way, but I think they're doing it very strategically based on cost, commodity prices. It's expensive. It's going to be expensive, so you're not going to be able to come out and do tilapia first, which is a really low priced fish product. And you know, a lot of tilapia is consumed. It's not a bad product, but they're just not going to be able to compete. What'll be really interesting to see is if the people that purchase high end tuna, sushi grade tuna, are willing to use cultured tuna in their products, and if it has the same mouthfeel. Back to that fun word, like that's same mouthfeel, texture, taste that you get from, you know, naturally grown uh, and wild caught tuna. I think that's a similar question that that wild type is thinking through right now. Wild type is doing sushi grade salmon from cellular agriculture. And I would imagine that they too are are up against some, if you're going to do sushi grade, that better be pretty high quality. Yeah. You don't have a lot of things to cloak the meat, right? You don't have a bun. You don't have like a wonton wrapper or anything like that. Exactly. Well, we're staying on the seafood theme for this last bit here. The Oregon Seaweed Company is banking on the U.S. seaweed market taking off. 
Now, U.S. seaweed is currently a pretty niche market compared to the $15 billion global seaweed market. The startup tells the Seattle Times it believes it's the second largest land-based seaweed producer in the U.S. Most seaweed is harvested in Asia. Brett, I don't know about your kids, but my eight-year-old loves dried seaweed snacks. It's been a popular snack on the playground since she was maybe five. Is this a market to watch out for here in the U.S.? My kids have never eaten dried seaweed. Maybe it's a California thing. I was about to say, that might be the difference between living in California and living in Minnesota. I mean, when I was growing up, it was Doritos and stuff. I was shocked when she came home one time from school and was talking about how someone shared seaweed with her. Now she wants it and she loves it every single day. I know. And you ate the wrong kind of Doritos, too. You didn't even eat Cool Ranch. You ate, you <laughs> ate nacho cheese Doritos. Uh, nacho cheese, Brett. How many times, Steph, do we have to tell them? The seaweed space, I mean... You know, they're the second largest land producer of seaweed in the U.S. And I'm the best lobster diver in the U.S. also, right? So that's a cool statement to make, but how many of people are out there? And, I'm, and my honest answer is I have never gotten excited about the seaweed market in the U.S. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see in 10 years what the kids are eating on the playground, right? Well, coming up, we'll find out how a trip to Asia inspired one entrepreneur to use fruit to make meat. Pretty confident they'll still be eating some sort of Dorito. Yeah, <laughs> so true. It'll be nacho cheese. These days, there are so many ways food entrepreneurs are making plant-based meat. They're using methods like fermentation or culturing meat cells, or simply using a plant-based source like pea protein or mushrooms to make vegan meat. And in this space that's bubbling over with innovation, the work Dan Riegler is doing is truly novel. Riegler is the co-founder of Karana a startup which turns jackfruit into plant-based pork. His vision came about after living in Asia, where jackfruit is popular, and seeking to find a more sustainable and equitable alternative to industrial farming. Before he was a founder, Riegler was a traveler and a musician, not exactly the typical prototype of a food tech founder, but growing up in a nomadic musical family which didn't have traditional expectations for Riegler is exactly what he says allowed him to think outside the lines. I was born in Austria. I grew up mostly in the U.S. and the Northeast. But so I always had a very sort of European combined with American food culture and appreciation for food, but grew up eating a lot of meat, a lot of heavy uh, Austrian pork type things. Just out of curiosity, you said you were born in Austria. Do you have family ties to the country? My dad is now American. He grew up in Austria. My mother grew up in, in America, but both her parents and his parents both lived all over the world. My grandparents were sort of original non-digital nomads. So we always had this tendency to go out and explore in our family. Uh, my mother went and studied in, in Austria and just sort of stayed there. And that translated later to my life. I kind of just ended up going to Southeast Asia and settling a little bit. So yeah, we've always had this, this nomadic uh, exploratory vibe in our family. That's so interesting. Were they diplomats or what kind of work were they involved in? No, uh, my grandfather was a journalist uh, and my uh, other grandfather worked for an airline and they just sort of found ways to, to get themselves where they wanted to, to live in the world. Wow. So food and travel were big cornerstones in your life as a child. And it's also, we've always had a lot of creativity in my family. My, my mother's a musician, uh, my dad's a physician, so sort of a mix of art and science. 
So we could definitely see how all of that played into what you're doing now. Take us through sort of how you got from point A then in your childhood to point B, what you're doing now. Well, I've always loved food. We always grew up with a strong food culture in our family. And I've also always had an entrepreneurial drive, which also exists in our family. I mean, everyone has sort of found a way to to work for themselves, to build their own life and, and take a, a less traditional approach to things. Uh, that's no different for me. So, I mean, I remember starting my first business with a friend, I think, in third grade, uh, organizing security for family events. Uh, when we had people over, we, we made sure people were parking safely. In college, uh, we had an idea to start a, a food truck, realized there was a lot of red tape involved, and we sort of pivoted that to a catering company that catered uh, music reception. So there's always been a lot of food and hospitality related entrepreneurship in my journey. You also seem fairly advanced in your ambitions, third grade running security. How does that work? I mean, how tall were you at that point when you're... Was like an intimidation thing here? I think I've always just had a very outsized idea of what I could accomplish. And I think that's helped me a lot in life. You know, confidence is, is everything. And then when you went off to college, what did you study? So I started as a music major, again, always very drawn to sort of a creative side of things, but I think I never really felt passionate about pursuing that as a career. Uh, what I really wanted to do was just spend time internationally, live abroad, experience, you know, different ways of operating in different businesses in the world. I was also always driven by the impact side of things. So again, sustainability has been a huge driver in my life. I was very uh, passionate about financial inclusion. So looking a lot at opportunities in that space, went into finance, uh, took a very typical banking path out of college. I was going to say that was a, a bit surprising to see on your resume because it just didn't seem to jibe with the rest of your biography. Or the music major. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think my parents were quite disappointed. There's a running joke, a quote I read somewhere that was, don't tell my mother I'm an investment banker. She thinks I'm playing piano in a brothel. <laughs> and I think they would have been a lot happier with that outcome. Well, hold on. Your parents were more disappointed in going the finance route. That's like the exact opposite of where I thought you were going there. It's so funny. I love it. They wanted us all to be starving musicians, but yeah, no, but uh, I, I really just wanted to, I was trying to find uh, jobs. I was reaching out to some of the early mobile payments companies. There was a company in South Africa that was doing uh, banking for unbanked populations. I desperately wanted to work for them, but nobody wanted someone with no experience, former music major, uh, fresh out of undergrad, shockingly. <laughs> so I ended up in a bank in New York, but that was going right into the financial crisis. And as soon as I had an opportunity to escape, I took myself to Southeast Asia. And how did you escape in Southeast Asia? Well, I had a friend uh, who was riding his bicycle around the world, and he was just getting to Thailand. And so I said, that sounds fun and <laughs> packed up my bicycle and met him and spent the next six weeks on a bicycle. Did you have a job lined up or anything? No, I mean, I, I had gotten more of a bonus or more of a severance package than I would have gotten as a bonus. So I sort of, you know, made the choice that it was 2009, 2010. Did you pulled the office space thing. You just like didn't tell them you were leaving. You just stopped working until they'd fire you. They shut our whole group down. Oh, OK. I was laid off. So I needed the push. That was good. But <laughs> no, I mean, it was it was a new adventure and it was just, you know, time for a change. I did. I decided I just wanted to stay in the region, explore what was going on there, and, and found a job with a first a solar off-grid solar energy startup, and then realized that I, I couldn't resist my finance roots, so I got pulled back into more of a, a corporate finance advisory type role, uh, working on some of the first IPOs on the Cambodian Stock Exchange. Wow. And you lived in Cambodia for a while. I did, about four years, yeah. 
And where did the the roots of what you're doing now take hold? Well, that's really where it started. So like I said, food and sustainability were my big drivers. And I started working. I mean, there's a huge amount of, of agriculture, food production related work. I worked on a number of projects related to agriculture, worked with a lot of farmers and just seeing firsthand how broken a lot of our food production is, you know, the need for change, the need for disruption. That just put me on a very clear path to doing something in that space. It was really just figuring out how that manifested and, and what I needed to do. And I, I started dabbling with insect protein, started looking at a lot of different farming models. And a long and winding journey took me to jackfruit and then Karana. For those of us that are idiots like me, can you talk a little bit more about the mighty jackfruit? Because, you know, I think a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with it. So jackfruit is a super cool crop. It's the biggest tree-borne fruit in the world. Uh, we use them in their unripe stages, so when they're quite small still and before the sugars have formed, before the fruit has matured. But, I mean, from a sustainability standpoint, from a soil health standpoint, a biodiversity standpoint, it's incredible. It's a very farmer-friendly crop. So we source our jackfruit from a, a smallholder regenerative wild farming network in Sri Lanka. There's old-growth jackfruit trees that they plant higher-value crops around. So a lot of the jackfruit is not even that interesting interesting to the farmers on its own. A lot of it just goes to waste, sort of tapping into something that, you know, would otherwise not really be utilized. So you can really bring it into products as a, a very clean, very minimally processed base ingredient and still extract really, really interesting performance and, and take in a lot of different directions texturally and flavor wise. Okay, chicken and egg question. Did you start off with the jackfruit as your main ingredient and then land on plant-based meat as the right format? Or did you set out to develop a plant-based protein and end up with jackfruit as the conduit? I think it was a journey of finding, you know, the direction that food was going. And, and again, I've always been very interested in food trends. I think I've always had a bit of an eye for that. And plant-based was a clear winner. I mean, you could see that was the early days of Impossible and Beyond. You could see the excitement, the buzz building. It was a clear opportunity. But again, those products and the ingredients behind them were not telling that story that really resonated with someone like me who came from a very carnivorous food loving background but was wanting to move in a different direction you know, due to personal values and what do you mean by moving in a different direction what was it that the next generation of alt protein the beyond meats and the possible foods weren't giving you as a consumer I think it's that transparency. I think at the end of the day, people really want transparency. I think we've become very disconnected from what we eat, how it's grown, how it's sourced. And I think people really want to, to understand what's going into their bodies, what they're consuming. It needs to taste good. It needs to be accessible and convenient. But people really want to know what it is. Thinking of having these kind of novel ingredients, do you see it as a help or a hindrance that you are one of the only players in the market doing jackfruit? Is that something that is so different that people aren't sure or does it give you an advantage? It's something that we go back and forth on. We've done a lot of testing and have tried, you know, different messaging. You know, we've, we've gone back and forth because our product, the, the format we bring it to market in is very, very close to a ground or minced pork. You know, it was developed initially with, with an Asian palate in mind where the company is based in Singapore originally. One of our first hero products is a dumpling. So it's a very juicy pork dumpling-like experience. But what we find really resonates is that ingredient story. And even if people are less familiar with jackfruit as an ingredient, still understanding that there's something very real behind it and that, that it's the dominant thing driving this product, I think that's very powerful for consumers. 
By now, most consumers aren't really shocked when they hear about plant-based meats made from things like mushrooms or pea protein. But to take a fruit and turn that into meat, can you talk through the science of that? How do you guys do that? Yeah, so I mean, we have a really strong product and R and D team. We've spent a lot of time working in these markets, you know, understanding the ingredients from the tree, from the sourcing side. We have a whole sourcing team as well, understanding the supply chains, what can be done with them in, in various formats, how we can work with those ingredients, bring out those optimal textures, and again, keep that processing as clean as and minimal as possible. And then understanding on the consumer side and the downstream side, you know, what are the best use cases? How do we make those ingredients as accessible as intuitive as possible? So. For our baseline food service meat product, it's making it very seamless, very intuitive for chefs to work with. For our consumer products, like our, our dumpling, it's making it very experiential, finding the best format to showcase that texture, and building just very, very good, tasty, delicious products around that. And speaking of texture, I had it. It really does taste like pork. It's sinewy. It's soft. Without that. Tough chewiness of beef. Now, did you achieve that texture in house, or did you work with other companies which specialize in creating that lattice, or what I've learned from Steph and Brett, that mouthfeel, right, which is so important to alt protein? No, that's completely in house. We have a really great product in R and D team. Uh, Dr. Carson Carstens is our chief science officer. He comes from a deep background, you know, developing ingredients into both meat and plant based products. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's what we're doing is creating a platform around texture, about bringing the best possible texture, making these ingredients, these crops, as easy and intuitive to work with as possible. You decided to base yourselves in Singapore. Why in the heart of Asia? Though it probably makes sense given that you decided to start with pork, right? Well, I think we decided to focus more on pork as a result of being based in Asia. I've spent, you know, a lot of my my career in Southeast Asia primarily. I've spent a bit of time in East and Southern Africa as well, but. Uh, Singapore has a very strong ecosystem. You could see that that was coming. You could see that there was a growing interest, a, a lot of support around sustainable food, local food production, as a gateway to the markets where we were sourcing. We source our jackfruit from Sri Lanka. It made a lot of sense. It's just a very startup-friendly environment as well. Of course, given how things have evolved, you know, especially through COVID and everything, we are are looking beyond Singapore. We've launched in Hong Kong as well, where my co-founder Blair is. From originally, now we're launching in the U.S. So I'm based here now. I moved back last year, and we're we're gearing up for a San Francisco food service launch very very soon. Speaking of the U.S. launch, it looks like you're launching retail kits. How did you decide to launch with dumplings? Well, dumplings. I mean, that was really a case of designing a product for us for for what we wanted. Like I said, Blair, my co-founder, is born and raised in Hong Kong. I've spent. A lot of my career in, in Southeast Asia and traveling all over the region, and even before that, I've always had a very deep appreciation for Asian cuisine, especially dim sum. So for us, dumplings, dim sum is just the ultimate comfort food. And him being a very strict vegan, me being largely plant based, you know, you can get really good veggie dumplings, but recreating that juicy pork dumpling experience is. You know, you're missing something if if you're not getting that, and dumplings are just so universal. Is your product more healthful than traditional meat? It is. I mean, of course, anytime you have a convenience product like a dumpling, you're going to sacrifice a bit. So it's always that fine balance of 
taste and health, and we like to find a sweet spot there. You know, it's better for you indulgence at the end of the day. But the jackfruit itself, the base product is healthy. Can you tell us exactly what ingredients are in your plant-based meat? Sure. So, I mean, the jackfruit is the primary ingredient, and that's the bulk of the product. We supplement with a little bit of pea protein. Um, We use a little bit of yeast to give it a slight umami flavor just to so when chefs get it, they know what direction. But we don't go very strong on flavor. We like to keep it a very neutral, blank canvas kind of profile. And then we have a binder and a couple of of other uh, supporting ingredients in there just to to bring it all together. There, I mean, methylcellulose, which is in pretty much every plant-based product. And we use a bit of uh, vegetable juice for color just again to give it a slight familiarity in terms of of the look. How do you make sure that the meat doesn't have any sweetness to it given that it comes from a fruit? It's a challenge because it really is about managing the maturity of the fruit so it's very upstream management in the farm and one of the reasons we started in Sri Lanka is because there's a very deep existing knowledge around using the fruit in that young maturity stage that we can work with and we've learned a lot from in some other markets we're exploring where it's less traditionally used. And as we look to expand the supply chain, it's something that has to be managed. And so something we've gotten very good at identifying the right maturity. And, and there's actually quite a lot of interesting IP and data around, you know, sourcing and how you build and grow these supply chains. So it's a pretty big piece of what we do is just working upstream, you know, from tree to even before the crop gets to the processing stage and and really building those supply and, and sourcing systems. As you've pointed out, there's obviously big demand for what you've created. How do you go about scaling up to meet that demand? That's been what we've been focused on most of the last few years. We've really been in, in product development, R&D mode, and are now just getting into the commercialization side of things. And it's been about, again, figuring out what is that product format and what is the format where we can get the ingredients there to scale. And so it's been designed around building in the scalability. Jackfruit, one of the challenges with a crop like jackfruit is scaling the supply chain. They tend to be very fragmented, not very effectively commercialized. So we spend a lot of time putting things in place to make sure that we have redundancy, resilience in the supply chain, make sure we have steady supply throughout various shocks, you know, COVID and non-COVID related that are inherent in the markets we operate in. And then of course, you know, building, we, we focus a lot on partnerships. So we have a framework for how we view everything. It's, it's built around a jackfruit tree. We call it the fruits and the roots. So one of the things that's interesting about a jackfruit tree that allows it to be very drought resistant is its deep, deep root network. And they're very prolific in terms of yield. So, you know, yielding hundreds of fruits. So we want to be prolific in the value we're creating, you know, on one side, any point we can control and really come in and build our own value position. But where it's just inherently more difficult, like running a factory in Sri Lanka, we, we depend on really reliable, really strong partner relationships. So that's sort of the approach we take, a combination of, of building deep strategic partnerships and building value wherever we can. And on that note, who's your biggest competition, not just in terms of products, but also nabbing those partnerships? Is it Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods, both of which are also in Asia, or a cultured meat company like Eat Just, which is also been in Asia? I mean, we say our biggest competition is is meat because, as I said, we're sort of trying to to build out a new category. And we think we offer quite a different value proposition to a lot of the other plant-based. We view ourselves as a pretty complementary and differentiated product. And we've seen that in in restaurants in, in Singapore, Hong Kong, and now 
the U.S., places that have had no interest in using other plant-based meats are putting our product on the menu. So we really view it as sort of just a new and different option. It's coming for meat rather than coming for other players in the, in the space. In the long run, how do you envision Karana will fit into the big picture of plant-based meat? Do you see yourself staying in the kind of the niche category or growing into a more mass market company? Oh, no, definitely mass market. I mean, we're looking to, to scale these ingredients. And, and we again, we want to be the ones who make ingredients, crops like jackfruit, exactly the kinds of crops that we should be tapping into that have huge bioavailability, are not very well known or or understood and just make them convenience because we should be eating more jackfruit. We should be eating a lot more similar crops that support regenerative farmer-friendly farming systems. And we want to be the ones to, to scale them and make them accessible. I believe I have the longest list of questions ever for a lightning round today. I'm scared. We have a lot of questions for you, so we're going to have to get through them quickly. All right. We're going to start with the easy one. Do you ever get tired of jackfruit? No. What's your favorite Austrian food? <sighs> schnitzel. Even if <sighs> I don't eat it much anymore. <laughs> Schnitzel's delicious. I agree. I, I love schnitzel, a little lemon on there. Oh, it's just so yeah, I mean, it's, I, I can't say anything else. Yeah. <laughs> Will you ever make a schnitzel out of jackfruit? It's been discussed. It's been, it's, it could, could happen. One word, Dan. Probably. <laughs> What's the best genre of music? You're a music major. Educate us. <laughs> My favorite is, I, I really love New Wave uh, and like, indie synthy indie that's my favorite but i have a deep appreciation for classical opera so what's the best <laughs> i'm not gonna let you get away with answering like that what's the best genre of music let's let's make some people mad all right i'm gonna get new wave music peaked in the 80s i'm calling it. terrible decision <laughs> fully support your opinion is wrong <laughs> did you make it around the world on the bike no, my friend did. I just I stopped. No. I got stuck in Chiang Mai. <laughs> uh, I don't know where you started, so that might have been like a mile. It might have been a long ways, but um, you got stuck somewhere. Two thousand, two thousand kilometers. I'm assuming jackfruit is your favorite fruit of all time. What's your second favorite piece of produce? Watermelon, hands down favorite fruit. I got a watermelon guy. If you ever need to talk to him, I do always. Here is a really good one, and it might take you a second to think, so that's okay. What fictional character or real-life human does the jackfruit most resemble? Oh, I have at least two answers to this. This is my favorite question I thought of during this interview. That's a good one. While Dan is thinking, Steph currently has her head in her hands because she's embarrassed for me that I asked that question. Aditi is currently laughing at me as well. Okay, I've, I've got one. Uh, bring it to me, Dan. I'm just going to say Hemingway because it's, it's a bit rough on the outside. And you don't know what, quite what to, to make of it, but there's a lot, a lot you can pull out of there. I was going to say The Grinch. Physical resemblance, absolutely agree. The Grinch was my answer and the correct answer. <laughs> Are you a tech company or a CPG company? Tech. What country haven't you been to? Mm, that's a good question. The continent I'm least familiar with is South America, so I'd love to go to uh, Peru. That's high on my list. Peru. I've, I've actually been to that one. I have not been to as many as you, but I've been to that one. That's all I got. You did a great job because that was a lot of questions and some that were very <laughs> difficult. 
Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today I'm here with Bajoy, the CEO and founder of Artos. Bajoy, what's the problem that you're solving there? Artos, we are solving a very simple problem around personalized meals. Personalized meals are inconvenient, expensive, and not accessible to everyone. We are trying to answer a very simple question. What should I eat to improve my health, immunity, and longevity? We are trying to build that solution where Artos is going to craft personalized meals and it will optimize based on your diet preferences and health metrics. How are you solving this problem? So what uh, we are doing is we are trying to bring health science and human expertise. We are trying to get uh, static data. We will, If we want to onboard bread, we will have a health assessment. We will take the high-level blood tests, uh, at-home blood tests, like A1Cs, uh, lipid profiles, and all of that. We will get the baseline health metrics. And based on that health metrics, we will plan a personalized meals. We'll prepare those personalized meals and deliver to you. And you can monitor that health using CGM uh, or through the blood test results, which comes in. So you make the meals for me also. What's the big vision here? How are you going to take over the world? We're starting with food to transform how you manage your day-to-day health. Over a period of time, we want to integrate sleep, exercise, mental health, and want to be in a position where, you know, we are the ultimate platform for quantified self, a real high-performance lifestyle solution where we could offer that to our customers. And the next level is to be the connected health or where you can be more personalized and preventive health, all of that stuff could come. So it can be a virtual care itself. So we want to start with food and we want to build that platform for the future. Today, I'm here with Sam Eater, CEO, co-founder of Big Wheelbarrow, also well known for only owning Big Wheelbarrow t-shirts. Sam, what problem are you solving at Big Wheelbarrow? At Big Wheelbarrow, we are solving the problem of the friction and overhead that is involved in getting more local food onto grocery store shelves. And everybody wants local right now, and grocery stores know that, right? Yeah. Not only is it a thing about wanting local product, but for grocery store chains, it's keeping food on the shelves. How are you solving the problem? So we're kind of taking a two-step approach. So the first is that we need to create efficiencies and automation at the buyer side, so demand side, that enables them to order from as many small producers as they can with the same ease that they could order from one big distributor. So we do that very easily, kind of modern SaaS platform. And the second part of it is connecting the producers to the system and enabling real-time data to flow. What's the big vision here? Yeah, I mean, the big vision here is that by making it easier for grocery stores to get local, we're going to expand the space that's dedicated for local at those stores, which will drive more economic activity. It's going to be a flywheel. So guys, going back to the original question, when will fake meat taste like real meat? Thoughts? I think it's all about how long it takes some of these folks who are really innovating in texture and our favorite word, mouthfeel, to truly commercialize at scale, 
right? Of I think people are going to be able to get phenomenally tasting plant and cell based meat soon. And I like I personally loved Beyond and Impossible, but I think that high end restaurants are going to have the really really good stuff first, and then it's going to slowly proliferate as people figure out scaling. Brett, have you had fake meat that tastes real? Not exactly. I've had some really well-prepared dishes. Uh, I was actually in New York last week and went to a, a vegan restaurant for dinner and had several dishes where you could tell it wasn't exactly the chicken. Uh, it was a plant-based chicken, but high-end restaurant that did a great job of it. And we will get there. I'm very confident we will get there. I think it's probably at least five years out still before we're there. I don't know what the vehicle will be to get there, but for me, my litmus test will be when someone can recreate the Shake Shack burger. That's when <laughs> plant-based meat will have arrived. It's a good burger. I just am glad that I learned what a jackfruit was today. Yeah, true. We'll see you guys back here next week. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye.